Living Under a Rock in 1998 if you didn't have this song in your head at some point. Bewitched burst onto the pop scene with their debut hit Cella V and went on to take the UK charts by storm, becoming the first group to have their first four singles go to number one. But after being unceremoniously dropped by the record label just two years later, the girls went their separate ways until they reformed in 2012 and have been gigging ever since. I'm Genevieve and my guests today are one half of the Irish pop princesses, so here to talk about their lives in the in-between years and beyond after that thing they did, please welcome Adele and Sinead of Bewitched. Morning ladies, happy Easter. How are you both? You both look amazing. Uh-huh. Good morning. Morning. It's an early one, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really well. How are you? I'm a little bit sniffly this morning because of the hay fever, so apologies if I'm oh, a little no. snuffly. Oh but no, yeah. The season is starting, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah. I know you're all very busy and mums and logistically it can be quite difficult getting everyone together. So I really appreciate having you both with me today. Thank you. Yeah, it's practically impossible sometimes. <laughs> but there's two of us are here. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. Big love, obviously, to the other Bewitched members, Kiwi and Lindsay. Um, but yes, it is Easter. What is Easter usually like in your households? Are you full on chocolate fiends? Oh, yes. Yeah, Big time. Well, it's really weird, actually, because I like, I, I eat vegan a lot now. and But it used to be my favourite thing, Easter morning. And then I used to like break my vegan kind of mode on, on Easter morning and eat a chocolate egg like melted. I just melt it over a pot and eat it with a spoon, which is absolutely disgusting. But <laughs> it's annoying because I no longer enjoy it anymore. I did it last year and I was like, yay. And I'm like, oh, it's not the same anymore. It's too sugary. I don't like the taste of it anymore. It's like, no. Oh, God. <laughs> I discovered recently that in America, they don't do chocolate Easter eggs. Like, it, no, like it's don't. not a thing yeah. there. And that melted my brain a little bit. I can't believe that. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, it's missing yeah that was, um, we were in Disneyland actually a good few years back all my family kind of went out and they were doing a, an Easter hunt and the kids were so excited thinking that they were getting chocolate eggs and there was, there was no chocolate. <laughs> they were just eggs. It's weird, isn't All it? these coloured eggs. Yeah, it was so weird. They were like, what's going on? Why? We don't want these. We can't eat them. Yeah, we can't and eat them. Our house, like, you know, we love waking up on Easter morning and then we do the kind of Easter egg stuff and then we do an Easter hunt in the afternoon and, and a big, of course, Easter dinner, big roast, yum. Mm-hmm. Cool. On a, a bit of an Easter spring theme, Idel, do you still have chickens? Do I? Oh, do you know what? Um, no, actually, not chickens, no. We had the chickens for a while up when I lived in another house, actually, but now I don't live in that house anymore. And then, I don't know if you know this story, actually, but in lockdown, seven little mallard ducklings came in under my gate and their mother left them. I saw on your Instagram, yeah, and so you raised them. Yeah. So we did. You raised them and they flew away. <laughs> I know, how dare they? But they're actually, they come back to visit every year and they've been back this year as well. They just, they fly over. Oh, that's lovely. And they land in the gardens, like all my neighbours' gardens and stuff and say hi. So it's actually really sweet. That is so cute. That's I the most know. adorable thing. I know. I saw pictures of your baby chicks though on Instagram. That They must be great at Easter. Well, they must have been great at Easter. Oh, like so cute. I mean, it's the cutest little thing, isn't it? Enya used to love like putting them in a little bath of water, like she'd put them in her Barbie bath or whatever. Okay, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone.
Rewinding a bit back to the beginning, after you all met at Diggs Lane Dance Centre in Dublin and decided to form a group, and I'm quoting Smash Hits magazine from 1996 here, yeah. when the headline was, Shane's sister's in Bird Zone, shocker, because the news was that Shane from Boy Zone's twin sisters, along with their friend Sinead, were about to sign a record deal as the girl group Desire, and were hoping to be the new TLC. And you're quoted in the story as saying you'd learned a lot from Shane's experience. Uh, we we know it's not going to be easy, but we're not afraid of hard work. And obviously, Lindsay then joined you and became Bewitched. But do you think you still underestimated how much hard work it was going to be because you were so young at the time? Do you know what? Well, firstly, I was like, what's bird zone? What do they mean by that? Was that girl zone? Is that what they mean? <laughs> I actually was thought there was some weird bird story behind that. <laughs> I didn't remember. Back in the 90s when girls were birds. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think we do call girls birds at home in Dublin, which is weird. So, yeah. but that's smashes. Anyway, um, no, I don't think it did surprise me, to be honest. I think I knew exactly what was going to go on because we did see it. Shane was, what, a year and a half maybe ahead of us. So we knew full well how busy he was and how much we didn't see him anymore. And he'd turn up on the doorstep with his big black bags of washing for mom to do, which we never did, I must admit. <laughs> Always did our own once we left. <laughs> I suppose the hard work didn't really, I was just super excited. It was just like, you know, I do remember going into the record label and just going, saying to the guys, when are we really busy? When are we going to be really busy? I think I used to annoy them. <laughs> so um you know, I didn't, I was, I lived away from home as well. So I was well used to kind of being away from home. Um, so I kind of liked that. Um, I think having your schedule like 365 days a year, like literally mapped out, I think that was difficult and not having a day off. But no, I, 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 we were just on this amazing roller coaster and it was just brilliant. I think what's, what is amazing is when you kind of reflect on it now and realise that it was possible to work 16 hours a day in that industry, like every day. Yeah. Every day there was more magazines, more radios, more TV shows. There was always something to do, which is insane. Yeah. Because there isn't that many things to do now. Now, I guess, when I mean, we could be doing lots of podcasts and you're still sitting at home with no makeup on. Yay. <laughs> so it's like, you know, much less of a job where back then if the podcast was like a magazine shoot, it's like it's all day. You're up at like 4 a.m. getting your hair and makeup done and then you're there for hours upon hours upon hours just to get one or two photos. Yeah. You know, it's mad. I mean, it seemed like you were an overnight success in terms of coming out of nowhere and going straight to number one with your debut song, which was, of yeah. course, C'est La Vie. But you had worked hard for about two and a half years up until that point. You put yourselves together, you weren't manufactured, you used your own money to make a demo, wrote your own songs, yeah. trained so hard for hours into the evening every evening. So while it wasn't overnight success, your life did change overnight once you had that number one. So what's that like going from being able to walk down the street to then not being able to walk down the street? Do you know, we didn't really notice it until we had time off, which was probably a year later, maybe, <laughs> because we were just always together in the Prev, driving here, driving there, doing that. So it was, I do remember kind of walking through airports and then you'd kind of go, oh, people were looking and that slowly kind of used to build. But I remember then being in Grafton Street with my sister and just like a random day off and I literally got mobbed and I, I, I frightened the life out of me mm -hmm. within a, f a certain few seconds. There was so many people around me because at that particular time, there was a massive uh, picture of us in HMV on the main street in Grafton Street. So this it was massive, you know, I think it was a wake and breathe our second album. So you were standing beside yourself. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I suppose for yes, me, yes. it was always when we were together, it was almost like Edel and Kiwi used to get a lot of the attention. Uh, first, obviously the two of them being twins and, you know, it was just, I kind of used to 
just shy away in the background. So for me on my own, having that intensity of people recognize me, I actually had to, <laughs> I had to go into this coffee shop afterwards and I was just like, what the hell just happened? I had to like <laughs> decompress for about like an hour. But I did, I got such a fright because my sister was with me. And then she just kept getting further and further in the, in the distance. And I had nobody around and I was just like, oh my God, how am I actually going to deal with this? So I found it sometimes scary a little bit. <laughs> I didn't like it. But Idel, you remember that time when we were in Australia? That was kind of significant for you. Yeah, it was a lot earlier on for me rather than waiting the year later. But I remember when we touched down in Australia, we walked on Bondi Beach and we had no hair and makeup on, nothing. We were just in our beach gear and the whole beach literally just, they, it felt like they all stopped talking and just turned and stares and watched us walk down the beach. And I was thinking, what are they looking at? And then I realized, I was like, oh my gosh. And whoever was with us said like, oh, you're number one in this country. So we'd never been in the country before. We just touched down to number one and that's who everybody was looking at us. And that was really, that was when I realized something was really, really going on. Yeah. As much as we'd had a number one in the UK and stuff, I think it was so surreal. It was actually hard to process. And especially because we had been putting the groundwork in for a couple of years before that. So although although it seemed like overnight success to everyone else, it wasn't for us, but it somehow was as well because it was our first single at the end of the day. So yeah. it was, I mean, how did it go to number one? Like, it's shocking. I remember midweek, Mark and Danny from the script, they were really good friends of ours. We grew up together in a dance troupe and stuff like that. But I remember Mark and Danny ringing midweek on the Wednesday going, congratulations, you're number one. And I was like, What? And I was like, like, don't say, like, don't tell me that now. Tell me that on Saturday or Sunday, whenever the official charts were out. Nobody rang us at the weekend because everybody had already congratulated on the Wednesday because we were about 100,000 sales ahead of everybody. So it was a given, really. Yeah. But, and I remember um, when Ray had just told us, like, we were like, we just didn't know how to compute it. It was like, why are you saying that? I mean, is this some weird joke or what? Like, I mean, who does that? Yeah, I thought he was, I thought that I was just like, I screamed and I was just like, this is an absolute joke. And then I realized, yeah. and then I ran back into the studio going, no, that would be a horrible joke to play on somebody. So it must be real. <laughs> so weird though. But the, the other thing about like, get it, the recognition stuff, I think, you know, that year that we were working when Sailor V did go number one, we were always together. So you would definitely be naturally kind of recognized with the four of us, but we weren't really out in the world that much. We were literally just working home bed. So from yeah, the radio true. stations, the TV, it was when you were out of that environment as the four of us. And I was like, say, just on my own. Hmm. I just really didn't think people would notice. And, <laughs> and that time they did. So I was just like, oh my God, I'm so scared. So say la vie. What a tune. My husband will be glad once this episode's gone out because he's had it in his head all week while I've been doing my research. Oh, bless. Oh, we're sorry. Oh, he's blessing. very susceptible to earworms. <laughs> um, but massive hit around the world, nominated for an Ivan Novello Award. Mm. You co-wrote it too, as you did with three out of four of your number ones, which I think people probably didn't appreciate at the time. Um, but you were a bit shocked when you saw the music video, weren't you? You weren't, you weren't too happy with it. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was so funny. Sinead and I were absolutely shocked, like literally. Literally, it's really weird. I don't know why we ever thought we might be like TLC or something, because let's face it, we never actually were. But um, still, somehow, even though we shot the video, had great fun, knew exactly what we were doing. Just somehow shocked when it actually came back. Yeah, I'm like so, so shocked. And also as well, the first time seeing yourself on, say, TV or in a video format, like you'd kind of go... Oh God, if I knew I looked like that, I probably would have toned it down a little bit. So, yeah, do yeah. you know what I mean? You're just, you're really in the moment of full, da-da, and it's just like, but the colour, the flowers, like I was literally disgusted, I think. I was kind of going, <laughs> what the actual hell is going 
on, <laughs> you know, for all my friends, like when I first, like I, when I, before I even met the girl, I never possessed a pair of trainers. I was always in heels. I was always kind of dolled up. Yeah, that's true. Here I was looking like I was 14 with double down and flat runners on, <laughs> jumping around like I'm eight. I was like, like, what have I done? (laughs) No, but it must have been such a shock for Sinead. Like, because literally when we first met Sinead, like she said, she would wear like a, you know, yellow skirt, white tights with black paint and shoes. Not all the time. That was just once. I mean, it was, no, but that's the kind of style you had. Like she was like Laura, Ashley, and we were like TLC. It was, so it must have been kind of shocking Sinead going, what on earth? Yeah, what What on earth? Like really was. And I do remember actually uh, we'd, anytime we'd go somewhere and we'd be in our outfits like our denim and then we'd go out for dinner. I'd literally go get changed, put the heels on, put my jeans on, put my long coat on, look a bit like dressed up. And the girls just stayed and what they had on them. I was just like, I'm getting out of this denim into my heels. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk more about the denim in a second, but um, I just wanted to go, go back to the video because Sinead, poor you, you had to be repeatedly kissed by that guy that you tied around a tree telling him to get a life. Ah, uh, Tom. <laughs> Lucky uh, you. That was grand. That was great. That was fine. Uh-huh. That, was, that was the easy bit. The worst bit of the video was is that they put that tattoo transfer on my neck and every TV performance I had to do, I had to make sure that this tattoo transfer was like immaculately on my neck. Drove me insane. It must have hurt actually taking it off to reapply it, didn't it? It was, you just had to rub. Was it like one of those ones that you used to get as a kid where you kind of like stick it on your neck and put some water on yeah. it and peel it off? Totally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They didn't even go, they could have even got your henna or something, Sinead, so it lasted a while. Oh my God. Nobody thought of that. And so that went on for over a year because by the time Sailor V went to America and we had to do all the, I think we were on possibly two I Belong or Weatherman in the UK. We were doing um, Sailor V in America. I had to still do this thing. It was just like. And also, when you think about how ridiculous it is when you could have basically had the same look with one of those, you know, the stretchy kind of plastic ones that are weaved in and out. You could have just put that on. Oh, yes. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Let's talk about denim then. Double denim, of course, or, or sometimes even triple denim. Yes. Sinead, I saw a picture of you on a day where I guess you couldn't decide between wearing a denim skirt or denim trousers. So you wore both. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, hilarious. Is that you or Kiwi? That's hilarious. Did you do that? I don't remember you doing that. I remember Kiwi doing Maybe that. Maybe it was Kiwi, I think, yeah. Kiwi was wearing a, a dress, a denim dress and denim trousers. Oh, there you go. Sinead, you were wearing, was a, it was that very particular time in the 90s when you used to wear oh, yes. a, a skirt over... Your trousers. Do you remember that? I did that for two I belong. I, it was actually this short pleated skirt and then it was denims underneath. Yeah. Oh, there you go. I do remember that. I guess these days if you were just starting out, you'd probably have a brand deal with Levi's or something and be sorted with denim for life. But did that not happen back in the day? How did that not happen? Literally, how? Honestly, this is probably the only thing that we A, regret and reflect upon and go, how on earth did people miss that trick? Like, you know, yeah. if we were a little bit older and a little bit more clued in, we probably would have sorted it ourselves. But we were just you know, we're kind of running away with the whole thing, I suppose, and not really thinking about it all individually. Yeah, not thinking of those things, yeah. Separate businesses until later on when we were kind of starting to get a bit older and look around. But we are definitely open to it now. (laughs) (laughs) Sign us up. (laughs) Levi's, if you're listening, snap them up. (laughs) Um, So, of course, Bewitched were huge. Your first album went triple platinum in the UK, platinum in the US, sold millions of copies around the world, broke records here, being the youngest girl group to have a number one, first group to have their first four singles at number one as well, which is amazing, but that does come with a lot of pressure, which I know Kiwi struggled with a little bit at the time. Mm -hmm. It must be tough being at the top, but never really being allowed to 
have a bad day or have a day off when you're tired, as I imagine you must have been overworked and exhausted a lot and and always have a smile on your face. Definitely. We were, we were definitely overworked for sure. Yeah. I suppose like the tiredness was one of those things, but also the beauty about being in a band, it's just like if one of us was having an off day, if, do you know what I mean? One of us wasn't well, we can just step in. And you'd notice that in interviews, sometimes somebody would speak more and then the other person would, you know, not be there. And then, you know, that's the beauty about being together. I couldn't imagine, you know, doing it on your own. And especially when we went to Japan, you'd have a a translator. So the interviews just took twice as long because you were getting it all translated. Um, But it is, you know, and and definitely now we kind of do that as well with with all of us if somebody can't do it because now we've got families to kind of work around. So if somebody can't make it because something's happened, you know, we just tend to kind of just fill in for each other, g- get on with it, really. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it's like our uh, our first manager used to say she would be like, the red light's on, the red light's on. That was her saying. Like, yes. As soon as our front door opened, the red light was on, the smile is on your face, you're doing your job. And it was mad. And I think we did it quite well. A lot of the time, I think you did see a smile on our face and we were really good with people. But I do remember one time in particular in the airport and there was one fan in particular. And every time you seen her, she used to like stick some kind of recording device up to your mouth and go, say something, do something or whatever. And you would do it. And then this one day, I think we'd got off like a 24 hour flight from Australia or something. And then she was just like, shoved the mic right in my face. And I just went, can you just get lost? Take that thing out of my face and get lost. And I felt awful. Like I felt, I didn't feel awful initially because that's how I felt. I was absolutely shattered. Um, And there was people surrounding us anyway. And then she shoved that in my face. And I was just like, oh, it's just not the time. But then I felt really bad afterwards. I was just like, oh, that was really bad for me to say that. But it was a really bad day. Um... She never turned up after that, so I really put her. Oh. I think her name might have been Christina. Um, so Christina, if you're listening, which she probably isn't because she hates us, but you found me on a bad day. But I sure, she's forgiven you. Gave by her now. lots and lots of good days, but we definitely didn't see her since. So that. yeah, and I think also with the exhaustion thing as well, like when you were tired, you just didn't get to kind of really see places or do things because you were so tired. And I do remember at one point our skin going really grey and yellow. It <laughs> yeah. was just. You know, it was just like, oh my God, you know, you'd put the cap on the minute you get on the flight and you just kind of conk out. And then, I mean, like if social media and paparazzi like were really heavily around then, mm. oh my God. Yeah, paparazzi were around, but they just didn't want anything to do with us because we were bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did get away with it. I love that when you first rose to fame, Sinead O'Connor said that you were brilliant because you weren't the stereotypical 1960s image of repressed young Irish Catholic girls. But you did have a very wholesome image and I guess, Mm. you know, you were marketed to a young tween audience, but you did have a little bit of controversy because Sinead, you had to lie about how old you actually were. Yeah, she was awful. And you were quite a bit older than everyone else. And there was a big, big big hoo-ha when you were outed, as it were, in the press. Such a (laughs) hoo-ha. It was like, and, and I met the journalist years and years later who actually went and figured out and got some birth certificate stuff and printed it and went to this whole drama. And I bumped into him years later and I was just like, I hope that was worth it. I think he only got 250 quid for it. I was just like, that. <laughs> I was just like, yeah. So there was, I found that difficult because 
from the beginning, then the press people were kept saying, oh, no, don't say that you were paired um, in France. And oh, no, don't say you did two years of uh, college yeah, in London. No, don't say this. So I ha- literally had to take years of your life off all my memories and stories yeah. and years of my life off and not mention it. And it's just like, oh, just come out of school and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I, fa- I did find that really, really tough in the beginning. And I was kind of going out with my husband now at the time and it was just like he couldn't drop me anywhere or do anything and that was silly that bit was silly. oh it was just and we like, were caught <laughs> caught up in that it was just crazy caught up in that moment where girl girl bands and boy bands weren't allowed to say that they had boyfriends or girlfriends because the fans might not like it and stuff yeah but that was to the extreme at the time I think with all bands and it was so silly when you think about it it's yeah so you kind of couldn't be who you were really mm. and yeah that was that was kind of tricky but then you just you kind of then just get on with it, really. And and what was it that happened in Japan? You stole a lantern and the police <laughs> hunted you down for it? Yeah, well, it wasn't us, actually, but we were doing this TV. And um, you do some crazy stuff in Japan on TV, like as we all see anyway. They're like challenging themselves. Oh, crazy, yeah. But um, when we were finished this TV, we were walking back to the hotel. And then the presenter guy, he stole a lantern off one of the stalls. And then he went, run, run. So we all ran. So we always still thinking it's part of the TV, like, so we're all running and we get back to the hotel then and saying goodbye, everything's down. And then the police turned up and they were like, like, oh, there was this big kerfuffle about stealing the lantern. And then the presenter guy was going, oh, it was them, it was them, like, and telling your man it was us and all. I was like, oh my God, what What is going on? Oh my God. So maybe that was still part of the TV. Probably, you know, they probably did some kind of... Do you think it was like punked? (laughs) Yeah, like candid camera. (laughs) Maybe it was. Like maybe it was yeah. and then ages later they did, oh, and then we punked bewitched or something, but we <laughs> never saw that bit of it where they never told uh, us, like, you know. That actually happened to me in real life. I got, um, it was Candy Camera. I got it on Covent Garden. It was so funny. Really? So, so yeah. What happened? <laughs> well, they just came up to me and they were saying to me, oh, what we're going to do is um, we want to ask you what you think of Covent Garden and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, that's great. So then they went, right, okay, camera, lights, camera, action, go. And he starts speaking to me in uh, French. (laughs) And I was just like, oh my God. And I was like, do I answer him in English? Thinking that they're going to put subtitles in this uh, because he's already explained to me what they want me to say. (laughs) I was just like... (laughs) So do you funny. speak French though? I actually do speak French. That would have been great if he'd probably, they probably weren't expecting yeah, it if exactly. you'd thrown We're that right. back at him. I was just like, I did French in school and yeah, and I appeared in France, but I don't know whether how good I was at the time to actually launch into a full conversation, but I, it completely, That's so yeah, funny. it was so funny afterwards. So did funny. it go on the telly? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where it is, but somebody saw it. Talking about marketing, um, you had your own merch. And there were some bewitched dolls. Oh, Adele, I saw one of your dolls that sings Roller Coaster on eBay yesterday. For anyone interested, it's new oh, wow. in its original box and it's yours for £25 and another £25 postage to get it here from the US if you're in the UK. Oh. Do, do you still have any of your dolls? I think Kiwi has a full set. I don't have any. Yeah, Kiwi has them. Yeah. I don't have any. I don't, no. Were we even given one at the time? Because I should have one. No, I don't think we were given them. No. But like they're incredibly ugly. Like yes, they're hilarious. We actually remember getting them. We were really like, super excited about getting these dolls, and we had to do. Do we have lots of photos of our face and stuff like that, trying to get the recognition? And then when they came back, it was like they were just scary. Who on earth is that? Like, I mean, what <laughs> hilarious looking. Quite cool though. Still quite cool to have a doll made of you. Like that is quite cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so few people get a doll made of themselves. Exactly. I know. It's so weird that that was a thing, though, isn't it? When you think about that now, getting dolls made of you. 
It's just really weird. Yeah, people probably think it's slightly creepy now. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, I'm thinking, starting to think that it's a bit creepy. <laughs> They're only little Barbies, though. They're not like life size or anything. Now that would be creepy. That would be creepy. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. But still, though. <laughs> uh, okay, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latter zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Genevieve here just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener thank you for hitting that play button again and if this is your first time welcome you have four whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on so if you haven't already please do follow and subscribe it's totally free and if you'd like to support the show stick around at the end to find out how now back to the latter zone I've talked about it before on the podcast with other singers and bands about the cliche that is the difficult second album, but I don't really think that was the case with you. Um, the first track, Jesse Hold On, went to number four here in the UK and the next two songs were top 20 and the album went platinum. And it must be incredible pressure because after four consecutive number ones, the only way is down really after that if you can't sustain it. And mm-hmm. the only way is down. we see time and time again that record companies just throw talent away when they feel like they're not going to make the money anymore. And that's what happened with you when Sony dropped you just before you were about to release your third album in 2001. Yeah. That phone call must have been a real bolt out of the blue for you. Well, it's weird, right? Because when when I look back on it now, it's not only that we were dropped um, because they didn't think we were going to make enough money. It was like the record industry was actually, they were all merging at the time and it was all getting smaller. Mm. The record companies were huge and there were so many literally different legs off every record company. Then suddenly they were all becoming the one big company and even those companies were merging together. So we were just caught in that storm and then suddenly we were nobody's baby and nobody really kind of, nobody was really behind us and really wanting Bewitched to do something bigger, which is how we ended up dropped. But, um, you know, that initial phone call, my gosh, it was, it was, it was awful. Like the rug being pulled onto you just like that, you know, within minutes. I had a little bit of an inkling. I don't know why, but I felt like I had this sixth sense that it was coming anyway. Even though we had, we had the first single, Where Will You Go, written on the third album. We had it recorded and we were waiting to go to South Africa to make the video. The video crew had gone ahead to South Africa to recce the venues and stuff. And we were just to get a call to follow them. And instead we got this call in its place. Myself and Kiwi were in America at my sister's and we just had this phone call and our manager, Derek, at the time was like, OK, well, you know, it's done. Actually, Sony are like pulling the plug. And I knew what it meant straight away. And I was like, oh, sugar. Like, and then Kiwi just couldn't fathom what I was saying. I was like, it's done. It's over. We're like, we're done. Like, and she was like, what do you mean? What's done? Like, like, as in the video, Reggie is done and we're going or like, what are you talking about? Um, And it was really weird, really weird to compute. I mean, where do you put that? We had our where our whole lives kind of always planned out ahead for us. Our schedule was done by other people. We never had to think for ourselves even for the past kind of X amount of years. And suddenly now within one phone call, you had to think completely for yourself and change path. And it was really, really difficult. There's something um, that a lot of performers experience. You probably know about it, but for everybody else, um, whether the actor, singers or dancers, and the the so-called glitter crash or the post-performance depression that comes after you've had an intense period of work Mm. and you have all this adrenaline and dopamine running through your body from the buzz of being on stage or filming. And then when it ends, even if it's just after the end of your tour, or you finish work on a production, you're hit with this sort of come down and you struggle to cope. That feeling must have been a million times magnified for you all when you're in a massive pop group and then suddenly... You're not. 
yeah. there's no more group. Yeah, it was kind of it was kind of a little bit strange because six months prior, a bit like what Edel was saying, the the kind of inkling of knowing that something was happened, things had slowed down a little bit. Like we were just busy writing, so for six months previous to it, we weren't like on tour, we weren't doing loads of promo. We were kind of, I was in home in Ireland, Edel, you were in Ireland as well, weren't you? You'd bought the, your apartment and stuff. God, had I at that point? Yeah, maybe actually. Yeah. So we were kind of, there was a little bit of normality of life kind of happening around us. So I think that definitely the performance side of it, like that craving of, you know, getting on stage and doing that to audiences, that was the hardest bit. Not realising that you weren't going to do that again. Even going to gigs, we found really difficult. We didn't really want to go and watch anybody on stage or, you know, it was... Um, you probably have envy at that point like why are they doing it and I can't definitely yeah you do, you do and it's just like oh my god we're never going to do that again that's it was really sad I couldn't look at any of my um discs or all my scrapbooks or anything like that I found that hard sometimes you kind of put them in a box and then just put them away and then you know a few years later you're kind of rummaging through stuff going oh my god um you do kind of put it to one side but I was a bit older and I kind of was in a stage where I wanted to kind of get married and settle down so my focus just kind of switched a little bit as well so I kind of liked the fact that there was a little bit of normality coming back into my life and it wasn't just crazy. It's mad you know what I think is mad when when we talk about this and look back is like because the record company dropped us we just disappeared so I mean we did a we did a last tour in America we headlined a tour in America after we were dropped yeah which is absolutely insane when you think about it but then we also let that happen we allowed them because they were always the boss of everything and not saying that in a negative way but they did the schedule and they did everything and they told us what was going on we didn't realize that actually we could have taken that power ourselves there was no reason why we couldn't carry on gigging ourselves or like putting on a tour in the UK when we came back in all no reason yeah we didn't Somebody went, you're dropped, and we thought it was all ended. Totally. But it's like, we're reflecting on that. It was like, no, one element of that ended, but we allowed it to be the end of all of it, which is so weird. I know. But then there was nobody in the wings. There was nobody telling us, actually, yeah, you have been dropped, but you can still do this and you can still do that. We could have done everything, anything. A bit like what we're doing today. You know, we've been gigging for the last 10 years. So it's yeah, like, exactly. we could have been doing it, but. But we didn't. It's so weird. And I think it's just because you're so busy and so caught up in working every minute of every day you don't have that kind of thinking forward head to plan out where exactly everything could possibly go. Yeah. And then also, I guess you have to deal with that grief and there's a period of time attached yeah. to that, isn't it? Yeah, totally. So in 2002, you all went your separate ways until you, of course, reunited in 2012. And I know time is limited, so apologies, this will be a whistle-stop tour through your life since then. Uh, but Sinead, if we start with you, as you say, you made the tough decision to leave the band. And as you were a little bit older than the other girls, you wanted to settle down and start family. So you moved back to <laughs> Ireland, married your husband Michael um, and you now have two children and I know this is all water under the bridge now but you and Adele did fall out and didn't talk for mm. a decade was that something you had to do to kind of reconcile the decision you made to leave was I don't think it was a decade was it no it was nothing to do with that yeah we didn't like we never didn't speak at all but we stopped kind of hanging out I suppose didn't we yeah um was it a decade I don't think it was I don't think it was no I don't think it was it was probably about five years yeah there was nothing to do with her leaving the band at all actually yeah it was um it was really weird it was one of those things that kind of took a life of its own that sometimes they do in relationships and I still don't understand looking back on it exactly what was going on it's all a bit of a blur <laughs> I know um but I think you you kind of describe it like don't you describe it that you needed to find yourself without me because you kind of... Yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah, we were just kind of 
like a married couple and in, in each other's pockets the whole time. We were, so it yeah. was just like, I would say, go to Adele's house and let's stay the night. And then Michael, where are you? I'm just going to stay with Adele. And then, because we were so used to being on the road together <laughs> and it was so weird. And then she'd come over and then she would like stay with me and I'd be back over in her place again. And I was just like, <laughs> yeah, I need to just actually, <laughs> she was my safe place in so many ways. Do you know what I mean? But it was just like, okay, I need to just, what am I doing with my life? I don't know. It was just, I suppose it was intense. That's what it was. It was an intense. Definitely. Yeah. And it just, I think, got too much for me at one point. Like, so rather than, you know, talk about it or try to talk about it or, you know, deal with it, I just was like, I'll just cut it out type of thing, which is really bad because, you know, I'm not great at dealing with conflict anyway. I'm probably a conflict avoider. And I didn't know how to navigate the situation with Edel just didn't know how to how to do it like so no so yeah it wasn't it wasn't this massive fallout it was all just a bit of a blur yeah and then I couldn't understand I was like I think something's going on but I'm not really sure what's going on because she hasn't said it and I'm really confused yeah <laughs> I know so then yeah we ended up just being upset with each other then I think for a while yeah and I think I was I was hurt so I was just not ready to have I didn't know where to put her friendship other than where we'd had it just yeah way changing it from this intensity to now being put over there in a box I was like oh I don't know how to do this, actually. So I think I need to just step away from it. Um, that's kind of how it happened, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So then when the big reunion came a knock in, I was I had reservations about coming back to the big reunion. One of them was just getting back that close relationship with Sinead. I wasn't sure how we would do. And then the other one, just that I wasn't sure if I wanted the kids to get the attention that we were probably going to get because I had children now. Mm. But I'm so glad I did. Like, I mean, the big reunion has been great for us as a band, me and Sinead. Yeah. Um, as as friends as well. And the kids have been fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess it's um I guess it's that thing of what do you do when you've lost your dream job? Do you get a new dream or try and get it back? Yeah. You know, you have to make money to pay the bills somehow, which yeah. is something I can relate to as I had something similar happen to me. But um I really admire Sinead that you turned your hand to lots of different things to find the right thing for you. And some things didn't work out so well, like you yeah. managed a girl band for a few years, oh, but God, unfortunately yeah. they didn't get off the ground. But then in 2006, you set up your own stage school, Star Academy, yeah. and you went back to college and studied massage and Reiki. And I find it interesting that on your Instagram bio, you describe yourself first as an emotional, spiritual healer, Reiki master, yeah. and then a member of Bewitched Second. That is interesting. Yeah. What was it that drew you to becoming a healer and how do you balance the two careers, which I imagine one requires much quiet and calm and stillness and yeah. the other one's oh. complete opposite. <laughs> yeah. I know it is. It's so funny because like I've always been interested in, well, as a child, I was very religious. And then as I grew older, I just had this fascination with other what's out there and what, why are we here? And I've always had those big questions going on. And it's a thing that runs through me very, very natural, natural. So it's like, I'm just really, really drawn to, to I love the calmness and the quietness that it affords me when I'm as a child. And then as I, as I was getting kind of older and I, I say that I'm that first because I do feel like that, that is it's just who I am as a person. Do you know what I mean? The bewitched thing is definitely a part of me as in like, I love singing and I love dancing. It was, you know, a huge passion um, and it makes me tick and it gives loads to me. But as I was getting older, I resonate more with that side of stuff, definitely being more of me than the band, you know, apart from the singing and the dancing, I suppose there is um, a face and a person that you have to portray when you do this as well. And I felt like, especially in the early days of Bewitched, I had to fake stuff 
I had to fake that I was a certain age. I had to fake that I didn't have a boyfriend. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I didn't do this. I'd fake that and it felt a bit, a bit fake. You even had to fake that you'd even wear trainers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And then if you weren't having a good day, you couldn't talk about, you know, everything had to be presented and on and that gets tiring um, after a while. But I just love everything to do with that healing and meditation. And yeah, I, do, I just love it. You also write about wellness topics for the Irish lifestyle website Wasted and you of course did Dancing with the Stars Ireland in 2019-20 where you were eliminated in week eight and I think it's fair to say it was a bit of a shock exit as you'd done so well up until that point. Do you think you were a victim of the perception that as a pop star you already have a background in dance so you have an advantage over the others and don't go on the so-called journey that other people have? No, do you know what? Well, possibly to the audience, but not for me because it's a completely different discipline. And so you're learning something from scratch. You might be able to like do a one, two, three and have that dance background. I think my training helped because I was just like, I know what I know what I've got to do to actually pull this off. So I went into kind of training and mode, which I absolutely loved. And I loved the rehearsals and I love learning all the new stuff. But I think sometimes the perception of the audience might think, oh, yeah, she was in the band and no, of course she knows how to dance. But that year I did it, there was a few people that had done dance training and stuff and that were really accomplished too. So I think shows like that do that anyway. They'll pick people that they know can maybe turn out some routines. They'll pick some people that are just funny with it. There's a kind of certain kind of criteria that I think production look for mm. when they sign people up to those shows. So I just fell into that category of one of the ones that dance. Yeah. And the country voters are big voters at home in Ireland, aren't they? They are. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You've got the country or certain like um, counties behind you, like you're just going to win. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and they do love people that have gone on a journey. They love people that haven't danced before and, you know, have accomplished something. That is definitely like what they love. So moving on to you, Adele, you also moved back to Ireland and you continued writing songs. You wrote with the hugely successful songwriting and production team Xenomania, where you wrote songs for Girls Aloud and Sugar Babes, among others. Um, you released a couple of singles and an album with Kiwi as the duo Barbarellas, but you also wrote a solo album, which mm-hmm. record companies liked, but ultimately didn't pick up because they didn't know how to market it as you'd been part of Bewitched. And I guess in today's world, you just release it independently. But yeah. back then, that must have been really frustrating for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had a great time as Enemania. I absolutely loved working there. It was like mad, mad hours that we did there and they worked so hard. It was great. And then Barbarella's was good fun with Kiwi. Like, we, you know, we kind of just tried on different things, different sizes. Writing that album was great fun as well. Um, my own album, yeah. I mean, I, I saw lots of big people in the industry, actually, from record companies and publishing, etc. And everybody was raving about us going, we'll definitely do something with this. And ultimately, they were like, how do we do this with Edel Lynch from Bewitched? Which is such a shame yeah. because it was years later and I still can't get myself outside of that pop box. And if I were to describe the album, I was like, it was kind of Enya crossed with Massive Attack. So I may sort of understand slightly what they're saying. However, it's just like, but I did write this and I did create this. So it obviously is me. So I think I think the public are really they're so much better at opening their doors for you and allowing you to do something different. Mm. But I think the industry actually struggle to see you as something different. So so nothing was ever done with that, which was a shame. But um, I went back to college myself, actually. I, I then I met my ex-husband and I went back to college and I studied personal training and I studied neuromuscular therapy as well. 
uh, personal training explains why you're in such amazing shape and how I <laughs> sure she is. see all those pictures of you on Instagram in very bendy, stretchy poses that I can never do. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, thank you. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, the idea that we had there was we were to open up a gym together, actually, um, and I was just, you know, obviously he was already kind of in fitness anyway and um, got sidetracked having my children for a number of years and, yeah, then I did Barbarella's with Kiwi and stuff like that. Never went back to the PT and stuff like that, but I still obviously have it now. I know what I'm doing and I know what I'm mm. talking about and I apply it to some maybe friends and family and stuff sometimes. My NMT. Then I, I produce some shows sometimes with my little sister now for like the, in the Maldives in Dubai. We do like big New Year's Eve kind of productions and stuff like that. And I'm with my girlies now. Mm-hmm. There's always a, a misconception that pop stars have millions in the bank, but that isn't the case, especially when you're in a band and you've got to split it however many yeah, ways. Yeah. Damn it. And a lot do financially <laughs> struggle, especially after you've been dropped by a record label, which you've been open talking about. Yeah. Both Adele, you and Sinead have found yourselves in negative equity when the recession hit Ireland quite hard. Yeah. You struggled mm-hmm. to pay your mortgages. Um, but it was doubly difficult for you because you became a single parent of three young children and you found yourself in a situation where you couldn't work full time to earn enough money. And then when you do earn money, most of it gets sucked away on childcare. Yeah. How did you manage at the time? Oh, God, Lord. Um, it wasn't easy. It definitely wasn't easy making that change from having that kind of two parent family to one. And I was quite lucky at the time, I guess, because we had done the big reunion and I had done Big Brother. So there was a little bit of extra support for me at that time because I was doing kind of some solo stuff as well, i.e. like PAs and things like that. And it really just did top it up a little bit for me. Extra money than I would normally have. And I had an au pair. Uh, I had to bring an au pair in to help me mind the kids while I was off working, which was great. Like, thank God for the au pair. She was amazing. Lua was her name. She was from Brazil. And I think, well, that's how I still kind of am now, really, like all these years later, still rocking it on my own. And I think I just trust the powers that be. I think for years I stressed a lot about, oh gosh, like, you know, it's a lot of weight on my shoulders trying to provide like this for me and the three of the kids. And I stressed a lot about it and I had sleepless nights and would be very, very anxious. And now I tend to just, I don't think about it and maybe that's really bad, but I kind of just trust the powers that be and I just leave it in the wind and just go, I trust what I need will come my way. And it seems to, it has done up until now, um, and I just, I'm just going to continue kind of trusting that really. And a lot of the time I just go into it all with my eyes blocked a little bit, like, you know, like going into a storm kind of going, okay, let's find our way. Hopefully this will be. <laughs> and just keep working. Well, I re- what I really want to do is work as little as I can, but earn more. And not because I'm lazy, but because I actually like being a parent as well. And mm. I think it's really important for a parent to be with the children as much as they can. And because there's only one of me. And that's kind of what I have to ask the universe for, I feel, so they can get the support, but I can also support us financially properly as well. Yeah. You mentioned Celebrity Big Brother there. Um, There were some great characters in the house with you. The lovely Leslie Jordan, Kelly Maloney and Gary Boosie, who you clashed with a couple of times. Um, Although it's fair to say most people clashed with Gary (laughs) Um, at some point. Do you look back on that experience with fond memories or does it just give you PTSD thinking about it? (laughs) No, it's grand. No, it's weird. It's really funny doing something like that because, um, you know, you've got, there's a few different shows there. There's the reality of what's actually going on for you in the house, which you never see outside of the house. Then there's the edited TV version. Then there's the version on the app. And then there's another version in the press and stuff. (laughs) So it's like, I mean, I think I had one bit of a fallout with Gary. And the reason why I fell out with him so much is because we actually got on really well, him and I. And we used to like help wash his clothes and all that kind of stuff. Like I was really supportive with him. 
And then he just kind of one day just had a really rude thing to say and that just really peed me off. And I was just like, oh my God, you're just so rude. <laughs> like everything I do, like how could you even bother like saying something so rude? But then, you know, when they edit all these things on the TV and they're like, oh, you know, poor Gary, people are falling out with him. And it's just like, but you're not showing that we're washing his clothes. And when you're not showing that we're literally mm. like doing everything we can for him. Yeah, that you're helping him. Helping him out. They just show that maybe you're having a go every now and again. But no, it was good. It was mad being in the house. I mean, I think I was quite lucky in a way because I, I had that distraction of being on my marriage breakdown anyway. So myself and Kelly Maloney, the two of us probably had the best time in there because we were distracted by two very bigger things mm. at home. So we were kind of dealing with things inside where everyone else was falling out around cereal and all. And it was like, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Killing each other over like, hey, you finished the cornflakes. And it's like, in the grand scheme of life, calm down the lot of you. So like they were in a completely different show than we were. So, and it was really good for me. I, you know, I missed the kids like terribly being in there, but I felt like I kind of needed it. I got to press pause for a moment um, and actually just take a break and be able to process things. But I also had money when I came out the other side to actually pay for that breakup and continue supporting the kids and I. So I feel like it was a really, it was a, it was a gift for me at the time, I think. So, of course, Bewitched came back together in 2012 for the big reunion, as we mentioned, uh, which gave you all the opportunity to thrash everything out and start afresh. And thanks to that, it led to a tour and new music, your EP, Champagne or Guinness, followed in 2014, and then a compilation album a couple of years later, all the while gigging, and then COVID hit. And we know it's so difficult to make money in the music industry today. Streaming just doesn't make as much as physical sales and money's in touring and gigs. So it must have been really hard during COVID when live shows had to stop. What impact did that have on you? Yeah. Yeah, it was mad. I mean, over here, like, you know, you kind of, everybody's getting support and everybody's getting furlough and stuff and then you're not getting a thing. Mm. And for three years, there's not a thing coming in the door. And I was really grateful, actually. Thank God I had a really busy year the year before that. I had done like an Easter tour and I had done a Christmas tour and then we had done lots and lots of gig in that year so I was really lucky that I had money in the bank thank god it all obviously dwindles pretty quick and there was zero left by the end but it was quite hard watching everybody else kind of getting the support even when they had money in the bank as well but just because they had a nine to five they actually got to get their furlough and stuff like that yeah it's really hard and they were just totally cut off and it was just like oh no you can spend all your savings like and then worry about yourself on the other side I found that really kind of hard but again I kind of focused on the gratitude of having earned enough the year before that it was going to get me through rather than focusing on, I can't believe I'm not getting the support and I can't believe that. Like momentarily, I think I was cross going like, oh yeah. And then of course, when we're earning again, you're going to like, you know, thrash us for all that tax anyway to pay all the furlough back, even though I got nothing. Mm. Like it's a little bit hard. I do find that hard, a little bit hard because, um, you know, lots of people who didn't necessarily need the support as much as maybe I didn't because I did have it in the bank, thankfully, as savings. Lots of other people got that support too, but I'm paying their money back. Yeah. So I was a bit like, I think that actually you should allow me not to pay my taxes for a little bit when I come back. Yeah, I know. Like that was my Disney fund. Like, you know, I had a Disney fund. The kids have never gone to Disneyland and I finally had got that fund together. And being a single parent, that's not necessarily easy to do because there's, you know, I've got to feed everybody. And then also the older they get, I've got to, you know, pay for all their kind of extracurricular activities. And I like trying to focus on what they might want to do with their lives as well and not just... um, and not just keep saying no, if you know what I mean. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I just spent my Disney fund. But <laughs> I will, I'll have to get it back. You will get it back. A couple of years. And I am still grateful because there were people losing their homes and not able to actually feed themselves. So luckily I did have that. I know. It's my birthday, my birthday. Yeah. Ooh, nah, 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 nah. 
talk about new music. It's bewitched. I always I struggle saying this. It's bewitched. I struggle oh, yeah. saying that. Bewitched. <laughs> it's bewitched. 25th anniversary. And to mark the occasion, a couple of weeks ago, you released a new song, aptly named Birthday. And I have to say, it's so contemporary. I thought it sounds like something that Zara Larson might release today. Mm, I like yes. that. Um, but it's also very bewitched appropriate. It is. Yeah, I know. Do you know? Yeah. It was really important to us, actually, that we brought our sounds 2023. Like, it, you can kind of fall into that trap quite easily, can't you? Picking up where you left mm. off 25 years ago. But for us, we just wanted to kind of pave a way in the music industry today and what sound is. And it's so different. So different. Like, lots of the fans are going, oh, can we have the album we never had? And it's just like, I think that's something you just need to let go of a little bit because <laughs> that was written in 1999 and 2000. And Music is really, really different. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it is. And Birthday is Brilliant. So like the second we heard it, we were like, oh, this is the track. This is what we need to do. Because we've obviously dabbled in different sounds and stuff. And also playing vocally, you know, playing with your voice vocally. Like they sing different now. And there's different ways of sort of producing vocals in the studio and stuff as well. And for the rest of 2023, I know you've got a bunch of summer festivals yeah. you're performing at, um, but I heard we can expect more new music this year and possibly a tour in 2024. Yeah, I mean, that would be the plan. That would be great. So if we can get to do, you know, one or two more singles this year, which would be great, and do a tour for next year, just to kind of the cherry on the, on the cake. On the birthday cake, do you see what I did there? <laughs> I see what you did there. Um, it's definitely coming, like. So we're still in the studio, still working it all out. Um, and then we're here, we're here just to kind of pave a way, really. And we're, it will be nice to just get in and stay around. We don't really want to just dip our toe in the water, go happy anniversary and then jump back out. Yeah, so exactly. Find a way to just keep pooling around it, really. Last couple of quick questions before we end. Sinead, do the girls still call you skinhead or socky? Or are you just <laughs> Sinead now? I'm just Sinead, I think. <laughs> I call her Shinbin. Shinbin. They're our producer, Ray. He, he says still calls, He still says socky to this day. Yeah. Still says it. Yeah. Shinbin or shenanigans really is what it is. Shenanigans, yeah. Shnip, shenap. Oh, I also call her shnip, shenap, shenoodle as well, actually. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> I had the most nicknames. Yeah. Which is so mad, isn't it? And Idel, um, a couple of years ago, you received a Valentine's Day card from a secret admirer. Did you ever find out who that was from? No. Years. It's still happening. I've got it this year as well. Still? Yeah. <laughs> it's like four years in a row now. Yeah. Literally like, so it's either somebody like sitting back joking and having a laugh or somebody who literally just doesn't have the balls to ask me. <laughs> yes, he does. But scarily knows where you live. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Just, I know, no, Okay, then. Right. So it's a love-hate thing I have. Now, a little bit, it's like when it comes in, it kind of wrecks my head a bit. It's not, I don't sort of go, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, that's nice. It's just like, okay, you do me head in now. <laughs> show yourself, damn it, show yourself. Yeah. I need to know. <laughs> uh, ladies, exactly. thank you so much for joining me today. It's been so lovely talking to you. Lovely chatting to you. Oh, thank you. Happy Easter, happy 25th anniversary, and I look forward to your new music this year. Thanks, Millie. Oh, thank you so much. See you soon. Bye. Once again, a massive thanks to Sinead and Idel for generously giving me their time over Easter. Bewitched, still can't say it, Bewitched's new single, Birthday, is out now for you to buy and stream in all the usual places. It's such a catchy tune, I guarantee you'll have it stuck in your head all day once you've heard it. You can also catch Bewitched live this summer. They're playing at Brighton and Birmingham Pride, as well as the 90s Baby and Pop World Festivals, amongst others. So do go online and check out the rest of the dates. 
Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, it's totally free. And if you like to support the show, visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. It's always nice to get a five star rating or review, and also people are more likely to have a listen if someone else says it's worth it. So do that if you fancy. And please follow on social media and share the pod so others can discover and listen too. Just search for Celebrity Catch Up and you'll find me. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye.